Florence Nightingale by Mary Raymond Shipman Andrews, condensed from a lost commander. Often called the Lady of the Lamp, this indomitable woman pioneered modern nursing in the midst of war. Most of us have read in Dickens about nurse Sari Gamp, who took a drink when she was so disposed. But not all of us know that less than a half century ago, Sari Gamp, the drunken, the ignorant, the immoral nurse, was real and was multiple. Around 1870, in Bellevue Hospital, New York, there were plenty of her. Fifty years ago, says an eminent physician, some of the nursing in Bellevue was done by drunken prostitutes who were given the option of going to prison or to hospital service. They were often found asleep under the beds of their dead patients whose liquor they had stolen. A bad kettle of fish that seems to us, who trust our lives unhesitatingly to the comfort and service of hospitals. Yet such was the deplorable state of nursing, not only in the US but in England around 1850, when Florence Nightingale, destined heroine of the Crimea, was fighting for her future. Nurses all drunkards without exception, but two nurses whom the surgeon can trust to give the patients their medicines, such is a doctor's account of a London hospital. Towards such a world of drunkenness and immorality and misery did this daintily raised society girl steadfastly set her steps. In between London and country house parties, she was studying anatomy and visiting hospitals. That her family opposed her tooth and nail is not remarkable. Yet by 1852, in spite of family opposition, she had grown steadily in wisdom and judgment in her chosen field. On the continent she had studied and lived in hospitals managed by the Sisters of Charity. In 1853, she obtained permission to study Paris hospitals. Finally, back in London that summer, she went into her first situation as superintendent of the Establishment for Gentlewomen During Illness in Harley Street. Her task was harder than day labour. She had to manage the nurses and assisted operations and hold down expenses in the coal cellar and the larder. But that year in Harley Street, with experience as organiser, manager, nurse and diplomat, led directly into the responsibilities of the Crimean War. In 1853, England, France and Turkey fought Russia. British troops were landed in the Crimea and six days later was the Battle of the Alma River. After rejoicings of victory came a shift to bitter resentment. No sufficient preparations have been made for the care of the wounded, read a dispatch from Constantinople. Not only not sufficient surgeons, not only no dresser and nurses, but not even linen to make bandages. The newspaper indictment stirred England. The writer told of the French, Their medical arrangements are extremely good. They have the help of the Sisters of Charity, who have accompanied the expedition, these are excellent nurses. Next day was a letter in the Times. Why have we no sisters of charity? Florence Nightingale was urged to take out nurses, but she wanted official sanction. She submitted a plan to Sidney Herbert, Secretary at War. English women nurses in the army. A woman in any position of public responsibility was at that time a subject for prejudiced talk. Herbert knew that military jealousy and opposition would occur. A woman was not a person, she was a female. Now, however, public indignation over the scandal in the Crimea was so aroused that Herbert, with the approval of the Cabinet, appointed Florence Nightingale to select and lead a group of nurses. 
On an autumn day in 1854, Sir Alexander Moore lay wounded in the barrack hospital at Skutari, Turkey. Balaclava had been fought, and the wreckage from the cavalry had just been landed. Moore's cot was near a window. He had a view into the central courtyard of the hospital, a view that was to haunt him the rest of his life. The operating room was opposite, and out from its window came flying, amputated arms and legs, making an ever-increasing pile on the footpath. From their beds, wounded men watched. On this day, when Sir Alexander was trying to sleep, trying to forget the bloody things which came endlessly tumbling, the officer in the nearest cot spoke. More, he said. I believe that English nurse has come. Sir Alexander lifted his head and looked out. An army mule cart was carrying off the mass which had lain rotting. The English nurse had indeed come. Florence Nightingale and 38 nurses had landed the afternoon before. There was no excitement, yet instantly and everywhere her organising power was felt. Each side of the hospital was nearly half a kilometre in length. There were galleries and corridors, storey above storey on three sides of the building, enough to make, if continuously extended, 6.5 kilometres. In these corridors, closely packed, without decencies or necessities, lay men with terrible wounds, sick with hideous diseases. The hospital had been transformed from a barrack by the simple process of whitewashing, and underneath its imposing mass were sewers of the worst possible construction, from which the wind blew sewer air up into the corridors where the sick were lying. Wounds and sickness, overcrowding, and want of proper ventilation added to the foulness of the atmosphere. At night it was indescribable. The wards were infested with rats, mice and vermin. Even the commonest utensils for cleanliness, decency and comfort were lacking. Not a basin, not a towel, not a bit of soap or a broom, Miss Nightingale wrote. The cooking was done in large coppers at one end of the vast building and it took three or four hours to serve the ordinary dinners. The last wounded, maybe dying man in that weary 6.5 kilometres of beds had his lunch of boiled meat or gristle, hot or cold, perhaps at 3.30pm. Such was the hell into which this high-bred, soft-voiced woman walked eagerly, with no reason but the love of humanity. Before she came, a soldier's letter said, there was cussin' and swearin', but after that it was as holy as a church. After that, many things changed, with a quickness that must have made the routine-soaked officials dizzy. Six shirts washed a month for 2,000 sick, dirty heroes did not fit with Florence Nightingale's training. And the bedding, when washed, was washed in cold water. In a week, a laundry was started. Miss Nightingale, using her own funds, took a house, had boilers put in, and employed soldiers' wives to do the washing. Within ten days, she had three diet kitchens making and serving delicacies, for those so desperately ill that they were unable to take the food which came to them. With supplies she herself had provided, she set up a storeroom from which the surgeons were thankful to get necessaries, for there was a lack of these, even when they were actually in Skutari. Soldiers lay in blood-soaked garments of the battlefield, while three bales marked hospital clothes were in Skutari and nobody dared open the bales till a board had sat upon them. An important person of the board was away, The board could not meet without him, so the men continued to lack the clothes. She was charged with officiousness in supplying needs. She preferred to obey rules, 
but between rules and her soldiers, the rules went to the wall. What right have you to touch those stores? A mounted officer, riding into the great central courtyard, thundered the words at a slim young woman hurrying across with a can in her arms. A can of arrowroot, it happened. The young woman stopped and set her can down. She looked up at the impressive figure. She looked steadily, out of clear grey eyes, and said not a word. Only continued to look, till, silently, the officer turned his horse and rode off. Then Florence Nightingale picked up her arrowroot and went on about her business. There was jealousy from military and medical officers, a female with power assigned by the government, with ability to use her power. It was unendurable. Some officers sulked, others threw obstacles. Yet reforms went forward like armoured tanks ploughing over machine-gun nests of jealousy and red tape. She set up a money order department to receive the money of any soldier who wished to send it home, and in the next six months, £17,000, rescued from the canteen, she said, went to families in England. She started another rival to the canteen, a coffee house called the Inkerman Café, and drunkenness among the soldiers was automatically reduced. She established classrooms and reading rooms, and people back in England eagerly sent out books and games. She trained orderlies and educated her nurses. Beyond that, she wrote endless letters, chiefly to officials. By the miracle power of busy people, she had time to do all these things. But the greatest of her miracles was the accomplishment of the supreme object of her life, nursing. Not merely organiser and purveyor and schoolmistress and correspondent and thorn in the flesh to dozing officials, she was with her own hands intensely a nurse. She was known to pass eight hours on her knees, dressing wounds and comforting the men. Sometimes she stood twenty hours at a stretch, assisting at operations, distributing stores, directing work. She had an utter disregard of contagion. The more awful any particular case, the more certainty her slight form might be seen bending over him, seldom quitting his side till death released him. The men worshipped her, and at night, as she passed down the long rows, lamp in hand, pausing here and there to give comfort or assistance, they would kiss her shadow as it fell across their pillows. The Treaty of Peace was signed at Paris in March 1856. All England was on fire to meet Florence Nightingale. The government offered her a man of war to come home, but she declined, and on August the 6th, Miss Smith slipped quietly into London unrecognised, missing the bands, the triumphal arches, and addresses that had been planned for the lady-in-chief. She was utterly tired, but more than that, her health was seriously impaired. To Florence Nightingale, the two years in the Crimea were an episode. Really, they were an enormous and far-reaching starting point. One movement which she had not directly thought of serving, she had served. The position of women as people instead of females. Mark, Lord Stanley said about that time, what, by breaking through customs and prejudices, Miss Nightingale has effected for her sex. She has opened to them a new sphere of usefulness. The country wanted to do something for the soldier's angel, already doomed to invalidism for the rest of her life. It was understood that the wish of her heart was a school for nursing, and a fund was started. In a year the fund was at £40,000, and in 1859 Florence Nightingale began, at St Thomas's Hospital, the first lay training school for nurses. 
From her invalid's bed in South Street, she gave much time to the new institution. The first class of 13 was graduated in 1861. With those 13 girls in brown frocks and white caps, they opened a new profession which has reached to many countries. That little school at St Thomas's reformed the pauper hospitals of all England and finally the public hospitals of the whole world, redeeming them from the drunken immoral nurses from the Sairy Gamps. Meanwhile, lying on a sofa in South Street, Florence Nightingale read and worked and wrote without end. Her life of 90 years was crammed with action almost to the end, despite nearly half a century of invalidism. In a land where women were almost chattels, she acted as ultimate court of appeal on large public questions and as unquestioned advisor to high government officials. Her fame grew to international proportions and she was officially consulted on hospital administration during the American Civil War and again by the French during the Franco-Prussian War. Today, a figure of Florence Nightingale stands, lofty, on a pedestal in mid-London, and all England seethes about in the streets below. That is as it should be, but it is not all. Her truest monument, not made with her hands, is one not always associated with her name. It is the far-reaching outcome of that school of 13 young women in brown and white, housed and guarded in a wing of old St Thomas's Hospital. It is the hope of help to which the world turns in trouble, a fitting enormous monument, the modern profession of nursing. Editor's note, the Bellevue Hospital in New York was founded on March 31, 1736, and is the oldest public hospital in the US. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.